Well, last week we covered one verse, and today we'll cover 12, so we will make progress, I promise. Uh, John, John 13 through 17 is, is a wonderful section. I've been enjoying spending time with John and the commentators here. Uh, a few weeks ago, an interesting story hit the news cycle. Uh, there's, uh, the New York Post published this, uh, that billionaire tech investor Robert Smith stunned college graduates on Sunday as he gave their commencement speech, offering to pay their student debts despite it costing an estimated $40 million. So Smith uh, told the 400 graduate seniors at the all-male Morehouse College in Atlanta, he said, on behalf of the eight generations of my family that have been in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus, (laughs) which I'm pretty sure it did. I watched the video, and of course, the students' faces were shocked. You should have seen one of the professor's faces right behind him. His mouth dropped open. And then they broke out in this enthusiastic cheering, which I think is a very appropriate response to the gift they had just been given. Uh, Might be the most impactful speech those students will ever hear in their lifetime. And this will change most likely they're in their life and their children's life. Some of these students had over $200,000 in student loans, which is more than some of our homes. Now, the response to Mr. Smith's gifts has been mixed. Many disagree with how he chose to share his generosity. Even some of the students felt the kind of outrageousness of the gift. I felt a level of survivor's guilt, Miles Washington, 21. There were students that were here that were just as smart and just as talented as, uh, as, as those of us that didn't have the opportunity because they had to leave early. There was a student that had been there all the way up to that semester and then left to pay off his loans. Other news sites reported statements of how this type of behavior was unwise. It wasn't fair for those who had saved and paid their way through school. And what about the parents, one commentator said, who, who skimped and saved and provided for the education of their children? There was no rewards for their wisdom or their efforts. Many suggestion, suggested Mr. Smith should have provided this money in a grant for future students who actually did well with their grades. Point is... What Mr. Smith showed was grace. He gave these students something they did not earn, nor did they deserve. All they did was rack up debt. With no requirement that I could see from the article or the video, uh, other than once they received this gift, he said, take this generosity and pay it forward after they had received it. Well, grace in this kind of form is raw to some people. It causes humanity to be uncomfortable. We, by nature, want everything to be fair, to be equal, right? And this was definitely not fair and equal to most who heard it. And when Jesus tells a parable, he, he does this same feeling to people who are listening to him, who want this equality, who want this fairness. He tells them a story about this man who owed a field, and he hired people to work in it. We've heard this parable. So some worked all day, 
And then there was a few who worked just an hour. And when the owner of the field paid out the dues, he paid them equally, which made those who had been there all day furious. And those who were listening to the parable were outraged at such a story. How could you say that's appropriate? How could you say that's fair? It's a ridiculous thing to do. Well, this morning in John 13, Jesus will give the disciples a glimpse of this outrageousness of the grace that flows from him from the cross. John's gospel is believed to be written after the other gospels. So this is, uh, some even say that John used the other three gospels to kind of formulate his. What is unique about this section of John is what he records and what the others leave out in their record of the gospel. Now this is to believe to be the Last Supper, this area of John 13. And John does not record Jesus giving of the bread and wine like the other three Gospels do. What he does do is he tells us a story that none of the other Gospel writers record. And I love how the Gospel of John provides for us such a different angle to Christ. Um, I'm sure sometime in my, my uh, time here with you as being given the opportunity to preach that we might do another gospel. But you can see how John working his way through the life of Christ as he recalls his time within coming to the upper room and this is what he's thinking. I'm projecting this on John. He can correct me when we get to heaven. The other guys all recorded what he said. I'm going to record what he did as an illustration to his words. I think that's the best way to describe what John wrote. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 13 again. Now before the feast of the Passovers, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Man, that is something to post in your home to remind you. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And we will spend more time really uh, understanding why John keeps mentioning Judas next week. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now this is an important note from John. It, It helps us put into place why Jesus does this specific act of foot washing here in John chapter 13. John says Jesus knows he's about to die. His hour has come. So John, again, in retrospect, is uh, through the power of the Spirit, is, is formulating this, setting this up for us. And because he knows this, he decides to give his dearly beloved disciples an illustration of what is about to happen to him and to them in just a few short hours. Now, I only mention this because there are some denominations who have turned foot washing into a sacrament, something that we must perform, that we've been commanded to perform, which I was sitting with my neighbor uh, last weekend, and he just found out that uh, we had just met and just found out that I was a pastor, and he says, so what are you preaching? I said, well, John 13, foot washing. He thought I said, we're doing a foot washing, which he got all excited and began to explain to me his background and his wife's background in a denomination that does foot washing. I said, oh, no, no, we're not doing a foot washing. We're talking about a foot washing, which he seemed a little disappointed. (laughs) Uh, But I said, you can wash my feet anytime you want. A key indicator of that this verse 
is not about a ritual we should be performing on each other, is one that we just read. It was setting up for us the motivation behind what Jesus was about to do. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So again, so that's the setup. Jesus knows what's about to happen He wants to illustrate it for him. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Please note, John has already said that Judas is here. Which means Judas' feet, the man to whom he was going to betray, was washing his feet. Now, just to contrast this, in past... Those who have rebelled against God, God has, within a flick of a word, destroyed entire cities. And the man that is about to cause his death, he's washing his feet. Just an interesting note John puts in there. He came to Simon, Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter Simon said, Oh, okay, Lord. (laughs) Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. How about everything then? Now, I love Peter. (laughs) There is no doubt Jesus knew when we, when he finally kneeled down to at the feet of Peter, Peter would afford him this opportunity to explain what's going on. Up to this point, we do know that Peter wasn't the first disciple. I don't know how many went, he went by. But there's no way Peter was going to keep his mouth shut. Because he, <laughs> because he, 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 had a, he had a point to make to Jesus. And really, it's his affection, this, this, this affection he wanted to show to Jesus. And I admired Peter for this. He was raw. He didn't think before he spoke, which I can equate to. He just lived with his heart in his mouth. And his brain sometimes caught up to it. But most of the time it didn't. So whatever his heart felt, that's what drove him. I say this because so many times Peter would do things that was clearly out of love for Jesus. Just think about it. Chopping off a man's ear swearing he would never deny Jesus, rebuking Jesus for saying he would die. I mean, these are all things Peter should have never done, but he did it because he loves Jesus. You can even see it in the response here. The concept of being separated from Jesus, he's like, well, then don't wash my feet, wash all of me. I don't ever want to be separated from you. So all of these motivations out of love, and the situation here is the same. Peter loved Jesus, and the idea of being separated from him was atrocious to, G- to Peter until a few hours later when he actually abandons Jesus. So this is why Peter goes from not washing my feet only, but washing everything about me. Now, as I mentioned before, because we are so far removed from the culture of the Jewish culture of the day, it is hard to understand the imagery John is providing the reader. John's writing to a culture that's not far removed from the situation, so he leaves a lot of details out for us. So we need to put these details in so we understand. Now, of course, we all agree 
Washing someone's feet is not our favorite part of being a friend with somebody. Uh, Nor is it something we do other than for our kids and uh, maybe elderly folks that can't do it for themselves, right? It's not part of our culture. Now, foot washing was a regularly, uh, it was a, 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 was a regular cleansing habit within the Jewish culture. The, the, <laughs> they wore sandals and walked in dusty roads, so you can only imagine sweaty feet attracting dirt turns into something that is not pretty. It was customary for the guest of a home, if you were to have people over, as they were, so we sit at tables, but they would lay down at a small table and their feet would be out as they were reclining. And then a servant or slave would come by and wash those people's feet before they would eat. But this job was to be carried out by a servant of the home. And later on, there's some uh, rabbinical writings, there's some Jewish writings that says that during the culture of the day, it was even wrong for a Jewish servant to carry out this. So they would have Gentile servants. So the lowest of the low in their mind would carry out this responsibilities. Now, it was very customary during this time for uh, the disciples or the followers of a rabbi to provide, they would provide for his clothes, they'd provide for his meals, they would take care of uh, their rabbi, it was kind of their responsibility if they were going to follow him. And you would never see a rabbi lower himself to that of a servant or serving his students. That was just ridiculous, that would never happen. And this is why John the Baptist said that he even didn't feel worthy enough to be the Gentile slave to loosen Jesus' sandals. So when he says, I don't even feel like I can... John is saying, me compared to Jesus, I don't even feel like that I have the right to serve Jesus as the lowest slave in culture. That's how John viewed himself. And so this is how far... Below, he saw himself from Jesus, and then this is the situation that we're finding ourselves in with John's account. Now, it's very obvious because of cultural standards, the disciples knew that someone should have been washing the feet, right? So the meal is already over, and when they walked in, it was kind of that, you ever walk into a a restaurant or even someone's home, and it's like the bathroom wasn't quite kept up? to maybe where it should have been, and you're like, wow, maybe someone should have cleaned this, and then you just walk out, right? You're like, well, it's not my job, so I'm not going to do that. Well, that's the disciples are sitting around the table. Someone should have washed our feet, but no one did it. So there, just so you understand the timeline, they, Jesus just explained, my body broken for you, wine, bread, the whole scenario, we're not going to go through it. And Luke records this conversation that takes place right after Jesus explains his death. And Luke says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So we celebrate the Lord's table and it just crushes us every week because we know what it stands for. Those poor dear men had no idea what Jesus was saying. It wouldn't be till later they figure it out. So they get done. Jesus is like, I'm about to die in your place. Take on the Father's wrath. And he gets done and they go, so who do you think is going to be top dog? <laughs> right? It's like, 
So in my mind, as I'm putting all of this together, this is kind of the scenario that's setting up for Jesus, this illustration for them. Now this, part of our human, this is part of our human nature. We, we never want to do what is below us or what we think we're responsible for. So the disciples sitting there, knowing someone should be washing the feet, instead we're going to have a conversation about who's the greatest. Now I see this tendency to only worry about what we're responsible for, not worry about what's lower. This I, th- I see it in my own children. Now, I watch them walk past things. If you have kids, you probably see this too. You watch them walk past things on the floor and step over it a hundred times. And you finally stop and ask them, did you see that? And this is what they normally tell me. Yes, but it's not mine. It's Knox's. (laughs) Or, that's not my chore. That's so-and-so's chore. Hey, kids, I'll buy you ice cream later for letting me use you as an illustration, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> the disciples were too preoccupied with their status to ever consider lowering themselves to serving Jesus, even Jesus' feet. They all knew it needed to be done, and none of them were going to put themselves at the position because it was just too low. This is why it's so outrageous. It's just too low. And it is helpful to feel this, to see this, because it makes the interaction between Jesus and Peter so understandable. And I can imagine while the discussion is going on about who will be the greatest, is Jesus is hearing this conversation without saying anything, according to John, he just gets up. And he goes off to the side of the room and he starts taking off his clothes, his outer garments. So... Just, just imagine this with me for a moment. The one who created and sustained the life of every single man sitting around the table. The one not in the discussion of who's going to be the greatest. Gets up and serves them. John records some very important details. And I, as I read this to you again, I want you to listen to the details because we're going to compare it to something here in just a, a minute that's significant. So verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. So he had already gave them the bread and the wine, as I mentioned. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus was illustrating for us what he was about to do in just a few hours. He tells us this. He was about to remove his royalty, remove his sign of dignity, his sign of deity, and take on the disgrace of being the replacement on the cross, the thief on the cross. He was going to take the place no one else could take or would want to take. Nor would they see the need of taking. Now turn with me very quickly to Philippians chapter 2. Brandon read this last week. Remember Jesus setting aside. Now, now just so you know, people would identify Jesus not only as a rabbi because of his reputation, but also because of his clothing. He, he probably wore a wardrobe that signified who he was. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing that he would not let go of. What the disciples, what would they not let go of? 
their dignity. They wouldn't do it. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, the greatest in the room, is illustrating for them what is about to happen. Me humbling myself and serving you in such a way that is outlandish is a mere painting of what really is about to happen. It's a shadow of what's about to happen. I can only imagine the silence in the room at this moment. There's no way they continued their argument of greatness when they see God washing their feet. You know, I can can only imagine, you know, James and John. Yeah, but what's he doing? But it is understandable. Jesus, I get we failed. We should have washed each other's feet, but don't touch my feet. This is Peter. You are too great to stoop to this level. Peter was willing to say what no one else was willing to say. I can't let you humiliate yourself like this. No one should ever do what you're doing. Just stop. You're not going to wash my feet. So Jesus' response to Peter, Jesus' response to Peter is key to understanding this entire interaction and why John put it in here. Look at verse 7. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. He doesn't mean after the foot washing. He means after his death. John is recording this conversation right before Jesus becomes the lamb who will take away their sins. Think about what they're celebrating right now in the upper room. Passover. They are celebrating the lamb at this moment. So the lamb who will take away their sins sits at their feet and gives them a picture of what he's about to do. Look at verse 8. Peter says to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, there are two conversations happening at once here with uh, Peter. Peter takes Jesus literally, (laughs) the literal washing, why he responds with, Wash all of me then, Jesus. Just do everything. Peter didn't understand Jesus' point of action. So Jesus, the second conversation that's going on here is Jesus helping them see that unless they embrace Jesus' humiliation, they can never be truly cleansed. What was hard for them to watch was mandatory to allow to happen. So let's finish reading Jesus' response to Peter as to why he doesn't need a bath. Jesus said to him, the one who has Bathe does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Again, he's speaking of Judas here. We'll look at this next week. For he knew who had betrayed him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? John I mentioned it was during Passover. Before they were to come to the meal, there was a ritual cleansing that they were supposed to partake in before the dinner. 
So Jesus is mentioning this to Peter as to why he will only cleanse his feet. They, from a physical standpoint, he goes, you don't need a bath. You already had one. Otherwise, you're not supposed to be here. But it was also a pronouncement of his spiritual cleansing. He says, Peter, I've already pronounced over you your cleansing. If you believe in me, you are clean. If you believe in me, you are clean. So the whole point of John's story is to bring out for Peter this rejection from Peter. (laughs) Peter felt it, he voiced it, and Jesus used it to prove his point. What Jesus was about to do will make everyone uncomfortable as the disciples felt uncomfortable at that moment. It's hard to look upon and see as normal, good, or comforting the cross of Christ. What Jesus endured in our place is so outrageous to, every, to anyone who truly understands what happens. I believe that's John's point. The disciples are all, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus says, you don't understand This is what it takes for me to fix you, to cleanse you. I have to lower myself below you. This is why Paul later on says, for the word of the cross is folly to those. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. It's outlandish to those who are perishing. Why else would Paul say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Why would he say that? You ever wonder? (laughs) Because in Roman culture, it would be embarrassing to say that your king died as a common thief and none of his followers could stop it. That is foolish. That's something to be ashamed of. I've got good news. I serve a guy who died as a thief. He had no power to prevent it according to their standards. But Paul knew they did not take his life John tells us this in John 10, remember? They do not take my life, I lay it down for the sheep. It's outlandish. I become less than. I become humiliated. I become the symbol of things that people reject. This is why Isaiah's prophecy is so powerful. He describes him as the suffering, what? Servant. The connection made with John. Now, I want to point out that we, too, are just like Peter, if you haven't already felt it. Every time we attempt to look to our own righteousness and present it to God for his acceptance, we are doing what Peter's doing. Oh, no, no, you can stop there, Jesus. That's ridiculous. What you are saying in this moment is, no, Jesus, I will not allow you to stoop to my requirements. I can do this. It is too little for you to do. In other words, we deserve merit. We are offended that Jesus is the only way the Father will accept us. Unless He washes us, unless we possess His life, we will never be accepted by the Father. It does, at forms, offend us. It bothers us. We fall into the same trap as the disciples, assuming our actions, our position, will afford us a level of accountability before God. We as the disciples sit around and look at our efforts in the Christian life and assume, hey, I wonder how God views me. At what level does he see me? 
I've been faithful. I've not been, we compare, like this person. So Jesus tells us, unless you let me be the punishment of your sins, unless you let me be your righteousness, you will have nothing to do with me. That is, that is, I mean, you can't make it more plain than that. He tells Peter, unless you let me humiliate myself for you, you can have nothing to do with me. Nothing. This is why he tells them later, take up your cross and follow me. We often see that as some kind of a responsibility on our part. Listen, if you're carrying around a cross, you know what you're carrying around? A death card. He's not saying the action of taking up a cross is some kind of a servitude to God. He's saying, take up death. Don't bring your status with you. Again, our culture don't understand. Those who carried cross were despised and hated. Their life was over. And Jesus says, look at your life as it being over, because that's the value you bring. You bring no value. When a preacher tells you all of the requirements upon you in order for you to be acceptable before God, and if that one requirement is not embracing the humiliation of the cross, he is doing what Peter did. He's holding on to his status. I've got this, Lord. You don't need to do this to me. Now, we all experience this every time there's that unsettling feeling when we hear grace. I know some of you judged Mr. Smith when I read that story earlier. Well, that was dumb. They did not, what, deserve that money. $200,000, that's ridiculous. We want to feel as if we have earned our position, even though the word grace comes in before it, which means not deserved. Grace is so outrageous, our humanity constantly kicks up against it. And the reason I can say that is, is I kick up against it. Surely God requires something of me. I need to do at least something, meet him halfway, prove I mean business, I'm worthy. But this is the very point Jesus is making. Unless you are willing to accept the outrageous payment required by him, we cannot partake in him. This is why we always want to add something to grace. We cannot leave it alone. To make ourselves not feel so little, less than worthless. <clears throat> but as Jesus illustrates, our lives are worthless when it comes to standing in the presence of a holy God. What I mean by worthless is that God demands holiness. He demands perfection. When we look at our lives, there's nothing of value to offer when it comes to holiness. This is something if you do not embrace, you do not understand grace. Our value is less than. It isn't that we don't have value to offer, but it's worse than that. It, our lives are so offensive in his presence, his wrath rages against us. So you come offering value, and when it return comes at you is wrath. This is, this is why you need cleansing. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. So what Jesus is saying is this. 
I step in front of it for us. I took it into him. I, I took it unto myself, this wrath that was headed your way. I then rose from the payment that I made on your behalf and handed this pure, white, fully filled, holy life and I put it upon you and that's what's then presented to the Father. Everything was done to you. Payment paid for, righteousness received. And Jesus says, Father, this is my sheep. You have given to me. They have full holiness now. They are lacking nothing. They are perfect because perfection is the requirement. And God, this is the great, this is the great part. And God, with the love he has for his son, capital S, embraces you as his child. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's John 15. We who never lived the perfect life, we who are an offense, receive the same love of Jesus who has always been one with the Father. That feeling many of the students felt when they received the debt paid off, <laughs> we feel it as well. Jesus, surely there is something I need to do. Jesus' response is, sit there and receive it by faith alone. And if you don't allow me to cleanse you, you will have no part of me. It's a pretty powerful message, illustration Jesus gives to the disciples. Church, this is why as elders, week after week, we minister grace to our church, to those who God has commissioned to us. If we allow any other message to creep into our midst, Jesus says he will have no part of us. It's a, you know, Jesus is a very kind and gracious man until you start messing with his message. Then he's no longer nice. He's pretty pointed. Why? Because you're messing with life eternal. There will be a times that you are tempted to look to yourself to find affirmation of God's love. Don't do it. <laughs> That's Jesus' point. He says, look to me. Don't do that. <clears throat> Spurgeon once said, the cross offends men yet again because it goes clean contrary to their idea of human merit. There is not a soul in all the world that by nature loves to be stripped of all merit. No. The last thing a man likes to part with is his righteousness. This evil thing is bred in man's nature. When you preach against it, see how men will roar at you. They cannot bear that doctrine. Now, as men, as we get ready to turn to the table, it is that humiliation we experience every time we partake of the table. When you sit there and you receive the bread and the wine... The message being portrayed to you is the outrageous gift of Christ who humiliated himself in the presence of the Father, received in his body what you had deserved, and that feeling that you have when you say, it's just not fair. It's just not right. There has to be something. You'll go back to the illustration with the students. Once the debt is paid, 
and their bank accounts are at zero, there's nothing that man can require of them. They don't technically have to pay it forward. That is true grace. That's so unsettling for us to think that God took care of all of it 100%. Your debt and requirement. And if you're struggling with that this morning, you then understand grace. If you don't struggle with it, you may have not seen how wicked you are yet. Because you are that wicked. Now, what's great about John 13 through 17 is that Jesus gives us what's called grace upon grace. Where he then takes this new relationship that we have with God and says the spirit comes and gives you the desire to then not pay it forward, but to glorify him. You know what today is, historically speaking? It's 50 days after resurrection, which is the day of Pentecost. And do you know what happened on the day of Pentecost? The spirit came and transformed the world. And so today, we sit here as a church, worshiping Christ. And if you have a smidgen of hope and love and a desire to follow God, it is not because of you or any merit or because you read your Bible or you did this or you did that. It's because God cleansed you and put a spirit in you. And you now are going to be reminded of this through receiving the table. I want to also remind you that as those who have received baptism, those who have been washed in the water, there is an illustration that's coming, and I think this illustration of foot washing is pointing to it, is that every time we think of our cleansing, we can look back to our baptism and say, yes, I have once and for all been cleansed. That physical reality of being washed in the water cannot be undone. You cannot be unbaptized. Once you are clean, you are always clean. So we celebrate the table reminding us how that cleansing took place. And we look to our baptism to say, yes, it is true. As I have been cleansed in the waters of baptism, so my soul has been cleansed. Again, we do not baptize to receive cleansing, but to celebrate what has been done. And to use it to to strengthen our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Once again, allowing the word to powerfully come from John to our ears. May we find our hope and strength once again, not in what we have done, but what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.